I ain't never going anywhere, Kim Gordon sings in Tunic, Song for Karen. She's singing from the perspective of the late Karen Carpenter, one half of the 70s sibling duo, The Carpenters. And for Karen, this line makes sense. But with this 1990 album, Goo, Sonic Youth were just starting to go places, at least in terms of platform and fame. Given how closely associated grunge and indie rock are with the 90s now, it's easy to forget how underground alternative music once was. In this episode, we're getting out our shovels and taking you back to the underground, right before it blew up. I'm Cecilia Johnson, and this is The Current Rewind, the podcast putting music's unsung stories on the map. In this season of Rewind, we're zooming in on several important dates in the history of First Avenue, one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest live venues. To help us out and to showcase the breadth of First Ave's musical history, most of these episodes will feature a different guest host. This time, Kiss the Tigers' Megan Kreidler joins us to tell the story of a sold-out show featuring three artists, Sonic Youth and Minneapolis's Cows and Babes in Toyland, who represented an alternative rock scene at the cusp of mainstream popularity. Megan is a magnetic front person. I've seen her band Kiss the Tiger so many times, and she's one of my favorite theater actors in town. Enjoy. Hey, it's Megan Kreidler from Kiss the Tiger. I've seen a lot of shows at First Avenue, and along with my band, I've performed in the main room and at the 7th Street entry next door. We were actually scheduled to open for Golden Smog the week of First Avenue's 50th anniversary. But due to the coronavirus pandemic, that gig got canceled. I've been performing rock music in Minnesota for five years, and I'm proud to join a lineage that reaches back to Augie Garcia's work in the 1950s. The 80s were a big decade for Minneapolis rock. Back then, bands like Soul Asylum and The Replacements reached cult status in town. Then, in the early 90s, the epicenter of U.S. alt-rock swayed to Seattle, where grunge and flannel were entering mainstream consciousness. In this episode, we'll witness a moment just before Nirvana blew up, when artists from Minneapolis and the coasts were befriending and playing shows with each other. It all culminates in one historic, sold-out concert, the night of October 22, 1990. Downtown, First Avenue was entering something of a heyday. The club's musical menu was always wide-ranging. In 1990, the calendar included everyone from jazz legend Sun Ra to reggae greats Black Uhuru to DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. But the music that filled the place up most regularly was the punk and indie rock that had been its bread and butter for years. That year's last few months included a two-night stand by Bob Mould, who'd left both Husker Du and Minneapolis a couple years earlier for a solo career, plus shows from Iggy Pop, Billy Bragg, Skinny Puppy, The Lemonheads, Jane's Addiction, and The Pixies. Few of these artists sounded much alike, but they were increasingly lumped together as alternative or college rock since they got most of their airplay on college radio. That was the only radio we had. Chrissy Dunlap worked at First Avenue's office for most of the 80s. There wasn't anything else. So yeah, we relied on college radio. 
and KFAI. Did ticket giveaways, got all the promo stuff and whatever we could do to get them to play the music, talk about the show, and try and get some people interested. A lot of people were getting interested. In the late 80s, songs from college radio favorites like Love and Rockets, New Order, Living Color, and R.E.M. started getting mainstream airplay. So did a wave of folky singer-songwriters, including Indigo Girls, Tracy Chapman, and Natalie Merchant, who broke big with her band 10,000 Maniacs. College radio and clubs like First Avenue were becoming an on-ramp for the big time, and a number of bands who once worked with small indie labels were beginning to sign with the majors. One of the key bands to make that leap was Sonic Youth, which had formed in New York in 1981. The band's guitarists Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo would tune all their strings to one note or shove a drumstick under the strings, anything to sound unique. For years, they seemed one of the least likely groups to get big, too weird and noisy. But as the 80s progressed, the band, which also featured bassist Kim Gordon and drummer Steve Shelley, wrote catchier songs. And in 1988, after they released the highly acclaimed Daydream Nation, the majors began calling. In 1990, they signed with Geffen Records. Thurston and Lee discussed that deal with the current's Mary Lucia in 2009. Did you ever have any of those? Because I've heard other bands describe these and they sound almost surreal, in which you had to sit in some sort of almost corporate boardroom playing demos of your new upcoming material never. to Suits? Did you ever They have, knew that we would no. never Did they deal want with you to do that, though? No, not really. It was kind of in our contract from the beginning that we yeah. didn't have to submit demos or anything like that. They pretty much left us alone. Cool. You know? We had a pretty good relationship with them. The band also had a good relationship with Babes in Toyland. The Sonic Youth Association, I'd say from 1989 or 90, at least in the Midwest, was a big deal through 2000. Rod Smith worked at First Avenue between 1986 and 2002. He spoke with us by phone, and the audio is a little rough. If you toured with Sonic Youth, if you've got a Sonic Youth endorsement, if Thurston Moore really liked you, it was a big deal. Talking with Looch, Thurston said about 40 people showed up at their first Twin Cities show at the Walker Arts Center in 1982. But by the 90s, they were a big deal in Minneapolis. And whenever they came to town, they knew just who to call. Hello, my name is Lori Barbero, born in Minneapolis, and later was a founding drummer and singer, part-time singer, (laughs) in Babes in Toyland. Lori has fond memories of taking Thurston and Kim, who were then married, on excursions around the Twin Cities. They hung out together, but they're both so quiet, and Thurston's more outgoing and more, he likes to chat, and he's he's very curious and stuff, and Kim is way more reserved. Um, but they used to come to town and they would always get a hold of me and they sometimes would come to town a day early because they knew that I'd take them thrifting and record shopping because I'm the queen of both. <laughs> Babes in Toyland formed in 1987 after Kat Bieland, who moved to Minneapolis from Oregon and played rhythm guitar, met Lori, who took up the drums to play with Kat. The original Babes lineup also featured bassist Chris Holitz and a full-time singer, Cindy Russell. It was a four-piece. They had a lead singer, and I saw him at, like, some warehouse. Michelle Leon was a teenager from Hopkins when she saw her first Babes in Toyland show. She says Kat only sang a couple songs. It was still those songs. Like, Kat still wrote the songs. It was still that really weird, raw, um, just really crunchy and 
creepy. But then Kat would sing, and it was like, what is that? <laughs> like, that's cool. That's crazy. I love it. And just seeing her, I'm like, that's like the coolest girl in the world. Minneapolis was a small enough city that even the coolest girls in the world were relatively easy to reach. I was dating Grant, who was in Soul Asylum. And then he knew Lori and knew everybody and just met all those guys just from going to parties and just there would be bands playing at like a warehouse over Northeast before like anyone ever went Northeast. There was like nothing, nothing. And then like a warehouse where people had their art studios and you would go see shows and there'd just be all these great parties. So just getting to know people and then especially like all those guys in Soul Asylum, you know, everybody knew Lori. Once Chris and Cindy left the band, Michelle asked Lori and Kat if she could join. And they were like, okay. From then on, babes had no problem getting booked. Because again, like Lori knew everybody. And she booked the shows. So, you know, we were always were able to get shows. Or sometimes it was, like, too many shows. Of like, you know what I mean? Like, it's maybe not good to play once a week. You want it to be special when you have a show. From, like, we're on new band night at the entry. Okay, now we can headline, but on a Monday. And now we can headline the entry, but on, and on a Saturday. And now, like, we get to be in the main room. Thurston Moore caught a Babes show at 7th Street Entry thanks to a certain Soul Asylum drummer. Again, Grant, I hate that this has to have, like, a boyfriend connection, but it kind of did. I think they had played with Sonic Youth, and we were playing in the entry, and they were just, like, in town, and they came and saw us. It was shortly after that that they, like, asked us to come to Europe with them. Babes were already making waves in Europe when Sonic Youth took them on tour in September of 1990. The trio's first album, Spanking Machine, was released in April of 1990 on Minneapolis's Twin Tone Records, and the influential British radio DJ John Peel named it his favorite of the year. I mean, that was definitely a huge point in our evolution as a band of from, like, all those brutal little tours and then going to Europe and there's, like, people yelling our names and taking our pictures. It was so weird. <laughs> we were just like, we would just look at each other, crack up. Like, it was just very surreal. Touring with Sonic Youth was Babe's first taste of the rock and roll big time. I felt a little bit more special because I was in Europe and I was in Europe with the band that started in my dirty, nasty basement in South Minneapolis. And I was on in Europe with one of my all-time favorite bands. Even getting to the venue and then just spending the day with them until we did the show, you know? It just was just so fun. Where the best places to go in every town, what the best thing to eat is, and what you get on your rider, and ask for more than cheese, because in Europe, all you're going to get is cheese. (laughs) Babes may not have played overseas prior to that tour, but they were hardly strangers to the road. Just touring, 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 like... Let's get in a van and we're going to come home in eight months. You know, just like every little club all over all the lands. Driving through mountain ranges, driving through the desert, (laughs) driving through the farms. 
sleeping in the van, sleeping on top of the van, sleeping at really weird houses with meeting great people. And those are the things that I remember really well. The year before their European trek, Babes went on tour with another noisy band from Minneapolis. Cows were one of those bands that played the, the entry innumerable times, and uh, each one was wildly different. And I mean, some of the wildest stories I had heard were from Cow's shows in the entry. Chris Riemann Schneider is the author of First Avenue, Minnesota's Main Room. Shannon, the, the singer, Shannon Selberg, brought a, somehow brought a, a live crab out on stage and, I don't know, was serenading it or something. And, and then a few minutes later, a woman in the audience starts screaming, and there's, there's sure enough, there's a crab <laughs> has latched onto her leg. <laughs> that, believe it or not, was a mild Cow's performance. The quartet, which also featured bass player Kevin Rutmanis, guitarist Thor Eisentrager, and several drummers including Tony Oliveri and the late Norm Rogers, both of whom played in the band during 1990, was known for an outlandish, unpredictable stage show. Shannon Selberg recalled the band's origins for The Current Rewind. Cows actually began technically in, I believe, about 1985, but it started as a bunch of people who worked at a home for mentally challenged children. And for, like, Halloween and Christmas, they would put a little band together and play for the kids. And on Alaric, eventually, they decided to play a couple shows at, like, the entry in the Uptown Bar. And I wasn't the singer yet then. Norm Rogers was. And I noticed he seemed very, very uncomfortable up there, so... Talked to them into letting, you know, what you guys need is a, is a monkey running around in front of you. That'd be, that'd be awesome. That's when I started singing. The band signed with the local label Amphetamine Reptile, whose logo, visible on jackets at First Avenue throughout the 90s, read simply, Noise. Amphetamine Reptile was really a influential, you know, noise punk label, primarily real noisy and, and heavy stuff, but really kind of counterpart with Sub Pop in, in Seattle. But those bands were very much part, a big part of the underground nationally in, in those days and, and really a big part of the Minneapolis scene and, and what a lot of people from outside the Twin Cities knew us for were those AMRAP bands. And cows were popular with other Minneapolis musicians, if not always with Minneapolis venues. Well, our first couple of shows were at the Uptown in the Entry and... The Uptown Bar just straight up said, you know, you guys will never play here again. I mean, you guys are a bunch of animals. But uh, the band Run Westy Run, we were friends with them, and they really liked us. So they went through First Avenue and the entry said, you know, if you don't let the cows open, you don't get us. And there was a guy who worked at First Avenue named Fred Darden, who was a big fan. Steve liked us a lot. We were in good there right away. And we sold a lot of beer, we would say. Records for beer and liquor sales in the entry. They liked it. Shannon was just bigger than life, like cartoon come alive. <laughs> you know, with like that cowboy hat and the horn. And then like all the marker. You know, he'd draw like a fetus on his belly. <laughs> like he like he had a baby in there. <laughs> He's one of the best front guys ever. 
His girlfriend was my roommate, but he was at the house set for months on end, even when he had two broken arms at once. First time I saw the cows was in the entry, and Shannon, the singer, broken both of his arms on tour doing something, something. Randy Hawkins began working for First Avenue in September 1989 and currently works at the Palace Theater, which First Avenue co-manages. And uh, so he had his bugle duct taped to a broom. And when he played his bugle, he had a stamp on it, hit him in the face, gave him a bloody lip, and he hugged it and blew his part on the bugle. And the whole thing was something I would never forget, that kind of thing. And it wasn't something, it was the kind of thing where I was like, well, that was memorable. <laughs> I thought it was great, but I can also see other people just, what's going on here? The 1989 Cows Babes Tour had its share of bizarre moments. We're in Texas and there was no heat and it was like 30 degrees in Texas for some reason. And we're all just like playing in these like winter coats with like a heater, (laughs) like this heater in the middle. We would just play for the cows and then they'd play for us and there'd be like two other people there. Like babes, cows attracted the attention of a certain couple from New York. Our first tour, we had a single out called Chow, which completely unbeknownst to us had apparently blown up. So on our very first tour out to the East Coast, everywhere we went was all like packed. I think it was that first tour we played at CBGB's and it was real packed. But we were just these hicks from Minneapolis. We didn't really understand what was going on around us. And CB's has uh, this dressing room that's just a tiny little room with a fluorescent light and no door on it. And it's in the hallway on the way to the bathroom. So you got crowds of people walking by it looking at you like you're in the zoo. And so me and the bass player, Kevin Ratmanis, we were just sitting in there waiting to play, not talking, just kind of staring at our feet. Then all of a sudden, an older couple comes in and they sit down, and we didn't know who they are and what they wanted, and we talked extremely awkwardly for about 10 minutes, and finally they just got fed up and left, and people started pouring into the room and asking us, you know, what did they say? What did they want? And we're like, what did who want? And you idiots, that was Ken and Thurston from Sonic Youth. <laughs> After that show, they, I guess they weren't mad at us because they stayed and watched the show. And then after that, they started wearing our T-shirts all over MTV. So we were kind of like their baby band for six months or a year. Shannon sensed plenty of differences between Sonic Youth and Cows fans, though. Their crowd would be a little more intellectual, let's say. I mean, we were just animals up there. So. But then again, they liked us, so. The show we played with them in the main room was probably one of the worst shows we ever played. I I don't remember much about that show, but I do remember that. It was a rare miss for us. Maybe we got too drunk or something. I don't remember why we thought we just wasn't clicking. Cal's performance wasn't the only awkwardness afoot. In a preview of the First Avenue show, Kim Gordon told the Twin Cities reader, quote, We did more with babes than we could really afford. This is the first time we actually took a band and they traveled in our bus. We rented a van, and they were in this plush bus with our crew, so it was kind of weird. I don't think we'll ever do that again. Kim said something like, they were in our van with us, and I don't know why. (laughs) It was really, like, embarrassing for us, because we were like, we're sorry. I don't know why. She's like, I don't know why they didn't have their own van, and we're like, I don't know why either. That's kind of, like, all the things I already suspect, like, oh, my God, I'm... 
getting on Kim Gordon's nerves. <laughs> like, it's like my biggest fear or whatever, or, or I'm in her way. And then it kind of came true in the paper. I think she felt really bad. It was like embarrassing for everybody because she probably didn't mean to like say it for the newspaper. But the show itself was a triumph for the headliners. This was the biggest Sonic Youth audience in the Twin Cities yet. The Nine Show was great. And it was it was a definite watershed moment for them here, at least. According to the First Avenue Band Files at the Minnesota Historical Society, 1,749 people attended the show. 1,386 of them paid admissions. Many of the guest list spots were radio station giveaways. Only one of those was through a commercial station. In 1990, KJJO 104FM had switched from a hard rock format to what was then called modern rock. The bulk came from KFAI, still a Minneapolis community station, and seven college stations, six all over the state of Minnesota, as well as the nearby University of Wisconsin-Superior. Kids would travel in all the time. I mean, when I was cashiering in the 90s, it was not unusual for you to get eight people in from the KVSC, which is St. Cloud, to come in on a random Wednesday night for a a local band showcase. This is one of First Avenue's most veteran employees, John Smith. A.K.A. DJ Smitty. I've worked at First Avenue since 1993. I am a bartender, cashier, and concert DJ. Nowadays, First Ave charges for most of their tickets, but Smitty remembers giving away hundreds of comps. Comp tickets for concerts at First Avenue were a thing that Steve did to make sure that bands that didn't draw that well were actually playing in front of people and to make sure that we had people to sell drinks to. We would give these comps to customers who tipped well at the bars. The ticket people, like at the record stores, they all got comps too. And because I was a teenager and all the guys who worked at record stores were adults, they generally didn't care about all-ages shows and would give me the all-age comps. As I aged into a a bar age, you know, I was in the network, so I would get comps to damn near anything. By the time Sonic Youth came to town, the music world was embracing alternative rock. Here was a band who'd never filled the main room before, and suddenly, even Smitty couldn't get in. Sonic Youth Show was a show I could not get comps to. I could not get a guest list to. I could not buy a ticket to. I could not stand out in front of the club and hope that somebody could get me in. It was the only show I ever wanted to go to at First Avenue that I did not get into. Because I'd seen Sonic Youth in the main room on the Daydream Nation tour, and that was a half-full room, and that was with a strong opener with Detroitson from Milwaukee and Pussy Galore, who evolved into... Boss Hog, more or less, and John Spencer's Blues Explosion. Both were pretty good draws at that time, too, so I was kind of surprised at how few people were there, but it was 1987, 88, maybe, whereas fast forward to 90, Sonic Youth's Cool Thing video had hit, and that was just kind of the lightning rod for the sassy magazine, spin magazine, 120 minutes crowd. That crowd would form the base of Rock's next big moment. Only a month prior to their European jaunt with Babes in Toyland, Sonic Youth had toured the West Coast with the Seattle band Nirvana, whose furious energy and walloping hooks were beginning to attract notice from the majors. On Kim Gordon's advice, Nirvana would sign with Sonic Youth's label DGC in 1991. 
Lori Barbero would become good friends with Kurt and the band, and Michelle Leon caught both of Nirvana's Minneapolis shows that year, first at the Uptown Bar, and then in October in the First Avenue main room. It was just weird and surreal and was kind of the opposite of selling out. It was their changing their thing to meet you where you are, and that's amazing. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by Megan Kreidler and me, Cecilia Johnson. It was produced by me and Jesse Weiza and scripted by our head writer, Michelangelo Matos. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Icetep and Johnny Vince Evans mixed this episode. Thanks to Brett Baldwin, Rick Carlson, Shelby Sachs, and David Safar for additional support. If you want to learn more about Lori Barbero's friendship with Nirvana, and there is a lot to learn, it's so wonderful and magical, go back to our season one episode about Pachyderm Studio. If you'd like to read or search a transcript of this episode, find one at thecurrent.org slash rewind. Uh, especially as we get to the sort of midway point of the show, we want to hear about things we're doing right and things we can do better. Email us at rewind at thecurrent.org if you'd like to share any feedback. If you want to support the show and if you have some extra cash, send it our way at npr.org donate. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. <laughs>